Good morning, and welcome to this worship service. It is so good to have each of you here with us on this Lord's Day. I invite you to stand and join me in the call to worship, which is printed in your bulletin. As the time came for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Lord Jesus, enter the sanctuary of our hearts. We fall down before you and worship you as we sing the hosannas that hail you, Lord of our lives. You are our hope and our salvation. Praise be to you forever. This we pray in your name. Amen.
Amen. It is great to see you. And we didn't quite get it at this service, but the first service as we were beginning, the children were so excited about the palm branches and things. We couldn't even hear to do the opening litany. But I got to thinking, that's exactly what I think that first Palm Sunday was. Just joy and excitement that the Messiah has come. And we are glad that you are here as we come to worship today. I invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here this morning. I want to just uh, make note that Cindy and I have, in our 18 years here, felt very loved and supported by this congregation. And last week uh, was another means of you expressing that with the pastoral vote. And we are very uh, pleased and excited to accept your invitation to continue on as your pastor uh, for the next four years. And we are excited about this opportunity and about continuing to serve together. And we thank you so much for your love and support expressed to us in a variety of ways, and particularly through that vote last week. A few things I want to highlight um, in the bulletin. Today is the beginning of what the church has called Holy Week. And uh, we have some special events that are happening tonight at 5 o'clock. The choir is presenting Rudder's Requiem. And we invite you to come to, uh, to listen and to engage in this, uh, this time of worship as it uh, helps set the stage for this week. There are other activities, as you see listed in the bulletin. Uh, Wednesday night, uh, we do not have any activities, but Thursday is our Monday Thursday service at 7 o'clock. If you're not familiar with the service, it is a time where we, we engage, we ponder, we uh, think about this last night of Jesus' life and on into his crucifixion and death. It's a, a more meditative, contemplative service. We will uh, share communion. We will also have a service of lights and of darkness. And so we hope you will be able to join us this Thursday at 7. Friday uh, is the uh, Good Friday Journey to the Cross prayer event. We will be in the gym, and you are invited to come anytime between 10 in the morning and 6 in the afternoon. You, as you see in these pictures, there will be various destinations there. And uh, all of them are just ways of engaging moments in these last hours and days of Christ's life. Um, we especially welcome children to come. If they're young children, they probably need adult supervision, but we'll have some materials ready for you. Uh, it's, a, it's a come and go as you desire. You can stay as long or as little as you like. Some people have come and stayed uh, 10 or 15 minutes. Others have been there an hour. Uh, it just really depends on what you would like to do. But there are many just ways, some tactile ways to engage in the, uh, the passion of Christ from 10 to 6 on Friday. And then next Sunday is Easter. And we will be beginning our celebration at 745 with a service of baptism. Uh, breakfast at 830 up at the campus center, the college. And then our worship service at 10 o'clock. So just note the schedule change for next Sunday. Next Sunday being Easter, uh, there's a break for a lot of our schools, and so there's a need for some folks to help work with Children's Church. If you can do that, that would be greatly appreciated, and not just next week, but also in May. 
and to use, um, to be of service to our children. Also, there's an insert in your bulletin about nursery, uh, September to May, some of you, or May to September. Some of you may not be around during those months, but if you are, we want to thank you ahead of time for volunteering to help in our nursery. And the flower committee is also in the process of collecting plants for next Sunday, and you see information about that. I do want to mention that after a lengthy illness, uh, Lyndall Hutton died yesterday afternoon, and I, we want to continue to keep uh, his family in our prayers. Uh, the memorial service for Lyndall will be held in June, and it will be combined with the committal for Ruth, who died a couple of months ago. Uh, but there will be a visitation this week. Uh, the visitation will be Wednesday evening at from 7 to 9, and uh, Saturday from 2 to 4, both at the Copeland Williams Funeral Home in Fillmore. Wednesday, 7 to 9, Saturday, 2 to 4. This will be posted on the, on the funeral home website and also on the church website. And we continue to keep the, this family in our prayers in these days ahead. I want, I want to invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. God, our Lord and Creator, We acknowledge that we have sinned against you. Our actions have fallen short of Christ. Our attitudes have not reflected Christ. Our words have not communicated Christ. We have been more concerned with our own comfort than with our neighbor's pain. We too often use our resources to protect what we want rather than being burdened with compassion for what others need. In our fascination with self, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Nevertheless, you have kept faith with us. We ask for your mercy upon us. Strip us of all that is unchristian and help us to live up to our calling through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Old Scripture Testament reading is Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? 
For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings, please stand for the glory of Patri. God, how our hearts are overwhelmed by your goodness. May others through us catch a glimpse of what you are, and through that may they also come to know the greatness that surrounds your name. Amen. You may be seated.
as we contemplate the love of God in Christ, we are called to come to him in prayer. If you would like to offer your prayers at the altar rail, I invite you to join me. Most holy God, our creator, sustainer, and redeemer, we bow before you in adoration and praise. As we prepare to enter into this holy week, we are reminded of the depths of your love for us, that your son would come and die for the sins of the world and then would be raised in glory to give us life. Lord, we pray that this week would be a significant week for us, that we would sense you speaking into our hearts and into our lives and that we would renew once again our commitment to you and to one another. Father, we come today with burdens and we give thanks that you hear us. We pray for Lyndall's family and ask that you would fill them with comfort and your grace in their grief. We pray for others who are grieving as well today. Wash over them with your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, for the needs that we represent. We pray especially for those who are struggling with the difficulties that come to us in our fragile bodies and in this fallen world. We pray for Jeannie and Donna, for Bev and Edna, for Linda, for Micah, for Bob and Bill. We pray for Crystal and Emily and for others who are on our minds and hearts this day. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who live in places of the world where there's great persecution. We think especially today of the Christians in North Korea. This very oppressive government. We thank you for every one of your believers. We pray that they will know your grace on their lives. We pray that you would give them strength for their daily lives. May they know of the love and support of your people around the world. Encourage them. Protect them. And Father, as we ponder their witness, may it be an inspiration for our witness. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We pray that you will help us to live what we pray. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
the one who leaves us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our holy Jesus, how hast thou offended that we to judge thee, having hate pretended by foes derided by thine own rejected, almost Was the guilty who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason! Jesus hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified For me, kind Jesus, was thy incarnation, thy mortal sorrow, and thy life's oblation, thy death of anguish, and thy bitter passion for Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee, and will ever pray thee, think on thy peace. 
Night, my The New Testament scripture reading is Luke 22, verses 24 through 38 and verses 47 through 53. Following the tradition of the church, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me? Is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? 
Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. (coughs) 
How do you respond when some men surround a church, lock the doors, light it on fire, and take the lives of dozens of Christians trapped inside? How do we respond when terrorists on motorcycles drive into a village that's predominantly Christian and spray everywhere they can with bullets from an AK-47, leaving a carnage of men, women, children? There are various uh, perspectives about how the world should respond to such persecution, opposition. Some people flee. Some people fight. Some people stand and take it. We don't face, typically, anything like that as Christians in this country. We do face in the perspective of some growing opposition. It seems sometimes that um, the government is squeezing us a little bit more and more. It feels like we are a little less able to express ourselves the way we might want to. There is some level of opposition. And in those cases, you get the same kinds of responses. Some people let it go. Some people stand and take it. Some people fight. In the midst of this disagreement and uh, discussion about how we ought to respond in these settings, sets this passage that we've read this morning from Luke's gospel. Jesus has been meeting with his disciples in the upper room last night of his life. He has poured out his heart to them as the gospels tell us. He has shared the, the, the first Lord's Supper with them. He has taught them. He has worked with them. He has uh, helped them. And now as he comes to the end of their time here and they're about to go to the garden to pray and then for him to be arrested, he says a, a curious thing. Hey, when I sent you out before, did you lack anything? Luke 10 tells us that Jesus sends the disciples out and says to them, don't take anything with you. Trust me. And they don't. They don't take anything with them. No provisions, no money, nothing to protect them. They just go. And they don't lack anything. And he asked them, do you, do you lack anything? He said, no, we didn't lack anything. He says, now, if you have a purse for money, take it. Now, get your supplies together. And take them. And if you don't have a sword, buy one. Because you're going to need it. Now that's an odd thing for us to hear Jesus say. Does he mean that we really ought to take up swords? All of us go buy swords or now in our culture buy guns and defend him. Is he saying that everything I've taught you up to this point you can forget? We're changing the whole thing now. Is he saying we're going to become a, a militaristic movement? I don't think so. I think Jesus is simply saying, when I go to the cross, things are going to be different. 
When I go to the cross, I want to re- you'll need to remember what the prophet said in Isaiah 53. He was numbered with the transgressors. And that's what I will be. I will be looked at as a criminal. And so will you. When you went out the first time, it was as though you were going out as, as groupies of a rock star. Everybody wanted to be around you. I mean, everywhere Jesus goes, people flock to him. They think he's awesome. They love him. In fact, if they think he's going someplace, they want to get there before he does. Jesus is the star. And if you're close to Jesus, it makes you a star. And I can see the disciples going out earlier and, and walking into a village and just saying, you know, we're friends of Jesus. Really? Come on to my, come to our house. We'll, you have, we'll fix you dinner. You can stay at our place. Listen, we'll go with you to the next town. It's kind of a dangerous road. We'll walk with you and protect you. If you know Jesus, we'll be, we're on your side. And Jesus says, now, because of the cross, the times, they are changing. And you need to understand that. Now, when Jesus said, talks about the sword, the disciples believe he means take swords. Because they say, Here's, we got two. And Jesus says, that's enough. And a lot of times that's interpreted as, well, two swords are good. That'll take care of it. If Jesus thinks two swords are going to protect them, he's out of his mind. You think, you hear the description of the crowd that comes to, to get him and arrest him. And he says, wow, what do you think I am? Bringing all these soldiers and people with swords and clubs. And I mean, you could have had me in the temple any day this week. Two swords aren't going to protect them at all. What he means, I think, is not, that, that'll, that's good, that'll do us. I think he means, that's enough talking about swords. It's not about swords. The message even translates it, something like that. Stop talking about swords. Enough with the swords, enough with the fighting. That's not what I mean, you've missed the point. I'm just talking about preparation, about being aware of the fact that things are going to be different. It's not about taking up swords. Isn't it interesting that Jesus talks about money and and supplies and swords and the only thing that they get are the swords? That's the only thing they, they are concerned about is the swords. And it reminds us that in their culture and in ours, it's all about power. You win with power. Whoever has the most swords, whoever has the biggest sword wins. Strength is defined by power. It's in their culture. It's in every culture. It's in our culture. Strength is defined by power. And you rule the world with power. I think that's why the disciples had this argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom. It's all about power. Who's got the most clout? That's our natural human instinct. To want to grab power. We believe we change the world through power. And that often leads us to a spirit of, we're going to fight. We're going to defend Jesus. We're going to fight for Jesus. There are places in Africa where, um, and probably other places too, where, but specifically there, where people have said, 
We're not taking this persecution any longer. And their response is to become persecutors. They become a group of vigilantes who terrorize people they believe are responsible for terrorizing them or are connected to them. And so there are stories of these vigilante people who say they're doing this in the name of Christ, just wiping out villages indiscriminately in some ways. Men, women, children. In order to say, we're not doing this anymore. And it, there is, it, it's evil, to be honest with you. But there are others who are not going that far, but are saying, enough's enough. Again, in places of Africa where the persecution is so bad, there is this, this movement of, for lack of a better term, it's just simply called not turning the third cheek. You know, Jesus says, if your enemy hits you on the right cheek, turn to them your left. And they're saying, you can hit me on the cheek once, you can hit me on the cheek twice, but not the third time. If you come at me the third time, then you're going to pay for that. I'm going to, we're going to fight back. We may even be aggressive about fighting back, but we're not going to let you keep doing this. And we need to be really careful, even as we talk about that, because something in us says, well, that doesn't, maybe that doesn't sound right. Let's be honest, we don't go through anything like our brothers and sisters in these places go through. And we need to be patient. And we need to to give them a lot of space to deal with issues that we don't know anything about. We want to be careful not to judge their behavior. Now, the vigilante behavior, that's one thing. But just defending themselves and standing up for themselves and saying enough is enough. I mean, we have to be careful that we don't judge them because, quite frankly, we have no idea what they're going through. But we take up our own swords. We may not take up weapons like guns, knives. We use our tongues We use the political machinery. We march in protests and 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 we we do our we have our own swords that we use. We just think they're okay. Here's the problem when when we believe that strength is defined by power, you cannot help but the next conversation being about rights. I have a right. It's one of the most, it's the beginning to one of the most dangerous sentences for a follower of Jesus. When we begin our sentences with, I have a right to, we are in dangerous, we are on dangerous ground. Because almost every time it's going to veer us away from the cross. I mean, do we have rights? Sure we do. But as Christians, we are always remembering that Jesus had rights. Jesus had more rights than anyone. Paul says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and took on the very nature of a servant and went to the cross. No one had more rights than Jesus, but he refuses to take them. He gives up his rights. And you and I are called to give up our rights. We get so tangled up in I have the right. I have the right to worship any way I want to. I have the right to say anything I want to say as a Christian. I have the right to to display Christian symbols on my desk in a hostile work environment. I have the right to wear Christian jewelry. I have the right to to special 
uh, treatment from the government. I, I have a right. And while there are times when exercising our rights might be appropriate, it's so easy for us to slide into the perspective of entitlement. I have a right. You see, underlying this whole mindset is an assumption that persecution and opposition are bad, are, are the opposite of what we ought to expect as Christians. And we do everything in our power to try to eliminate them. But that doesn't seem to be the perspective of Jesus. In Matthew's gospel... Jesus says, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. They've hated both me and my father, but this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. And 1 Peter, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you as though something strange were happening to you. See, in our minds, opposition is, is atypical to the Christian life because we don't really face that much. And we've come to believe that it's normal to not have opposition and we, we do everything in our power to fight against it. And that's not necessarily wrong. I mean, we don't look for opposition. We're not walking around going, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian. Somebody hit me. You know, we, we, don't, we aren't trying to entice people to persecute us. But we look at our brothers and sisters around the world and, and we think their circumstances of persecution and opposition, that that's abnormal. When in, maybe it's possible that they're the ones who are normal. We're the ones who are atypical. Aberration. We are so... We are so used to having everything. We are so used, we're spoiled with all the freedoms that we have that we come to believe that not being opposed is natural. The thing is, why would we think that? Because we are being opposed by the evil one. And our lives are in direct conflict with the evil one who has power in this world. He's going to oppose us, as Jesus says. He's going to fight against us. That's what he does. And instead of thinking that abnormal, there are many people who believe that's one of the signs that we're on the right track. John Wesley used to, had that perspective. If he went two or three days without someone throwing uh, some rotten vegetables at him or uh, tossing stones at him or, or uh, being attacked on the road, if he realized two or three days had gone by and none of that had happened, he would get off his, on, off his horse, get down on his knees and say, God, have I sinned? Is there something wrong with me? And we think he's out of his mind. And I don't know that we have to go that far. But we are so used to not being opposed in the way that we think that we have convinced ourselves that our goal is to eliminate opposition. But when you read the New Testament, I mean, for one thing, God uses persecution and opposition to spread the gospel. 
Acts 9, the persecution comes to Jerusalem, the church scatters, and, and the word of God goes all over the place. And God still does that in places of the world. But it's also a means of God's people to bear witness to those who oppose them and to those who are around them, watching them. How we handle opposition that comes against us is one of the most profound witnesses a Christian can have. And one of the African leaders said that Christians are people who take the cross of Christ on their shoulders until it leaves a mark. That's what we do. That's who we are. It's the way of Christ. But Jesus' warning to his disciples is not intended to instill fear in them. It's intended to make them more and more reliant upon him. That's one of the things that happens in, when we're opposed and, and when there's persecution is that we realize we cannot handle this on our own. But sometimes in the midst of that, our initial reaction is fear. And we react out of fear. Peter reacts out of fear in the garden and swings the sword. Cuts off the servant's ear. There is a sense of fear that leads us to feel like we have to defend Jesus. We have to defend the church. We have to defend the kingdom. We have to wave our swords and fight. And, and, but that's a, that's a defensive position out of a spirit of fear. We don't want Jesus to look bad. And so we do everything we can to make Jesus look good. We, we defend him. We fight for him. Because we can't have Jesus looking bad. And maybe we don't want to look bad. Maybe it's about us not wanting people to think that, that we can't defend ourselves. And the world says it, the way to strength is power. And if we refuse to grab power, they're going to look at us and say, what's wrong with you? You're fools. You're idiots. This makes no sense at all. What are you talking about? It's hard to take that. And we want to jump in and say, well, let me show you. I cannot imagine how much restraint it took for Jesus as he hung on the cross and those who put him there mock him. You're the son of God? Come down, show us. Let's see it. Come on. I cannot imagine how much it took for him to restrain himself from doing that because we all know he could have. And it is a struggle for us. We don't want to be considered fools. We want to look good. But the way of the cross is not the way of the world. It's the opposite of that. It's a way of surrender and sacrifice. And, and when we are opposed, instead of seeing it as, as some curse from God, we realize that what it does is it drives us to our knees and it drives us to God that much more. And, and, it, and we realize how much we need him when maybe we've come to a place where we think, I'm good. You get that feeling about Peter. After Jesus warns them, Peter says, hey, Jesus, don't worry about me. Maybe these other guys, they're going to fall, but not me. I'll go to the death for you. 
I can almost see the smile on Jesus' lips. Not a laughing smile, but a sad kind of smile of Peter. Six, eight hours. You're going to deny even knowing me. It's not about preparation. It's not about preparing ourselves in order to fight. It's about preparing ourselves in order to love. Some of you are familiar with the name Joseph's son. He was uh, one of the leaders of the, of the church in Romania during the, uh, the communist oppression. He was arrested, tortured, imprisoned many times. He tells of one particular time when uh, he was uh, severely beaten and interrogated and he got back to his cell. He threw a man. He fell on his face before God. He said, God, they're destroying me. I can't take this anymore. I can't do it. And he says that it was as though God spoke to him and said, Joseph, get up. Do you think the secret police are more powerful than the king of the universe? And he got up off of his face with a newfound fear. Not a fear of his enemies, but a sense of awe about God. And he walked into the next interrogation, a different person. And the interrogator could tell. And he said to him, you're so stupid, Joseph. I can't believe you're not giving in. I would have just, I would have just put a gun to your head right now. And Joseph said, okay, if you want to do that, that's fine. Because if you use your greatest weapon, I'll use mine. The interrogator said, you, your greatest weapon, you have a greatest weapon, and you, you realize where you are? He said, yeah. He said, your greatest weapon is to kill me. My greatest weapon is to die. Because when I die, my blood will be sprinkled all over every sermon I've preached, everything I've ever written, and it will empower the church. And they let him go. They didn't know what to do with that. That's the spirit of someone who recognizes that preparation for opposition is not about fighting. It's about loving. It's about recognizing that God wins. That the kingdom is secure that following the cross is always ultimately the way of life. As I'm pondering all of this, I ask myself the question, what do we do with this? What, what, where do we do? Where do we go from here? And then I want to make three suggestions to you. One of them is that we need to prepare ourselves for expected opposition. I don't know what that opposition will be. But it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't catch us off guard that the evil one is trying to get at us and to get at the church in every way possible. We ought to be prepared because we're expecting it. And, we, and, in that, and that preparation is to help us respond not with swords and fists, but with love and compassion Forgiveness and grace. 
to respond with a spirit of truth out of a heart of love. Even when it means defending, we do it out of a heart of love, not out of a heart of hatred, bitterness. Second, we need to be advocates for our brothers and sisters who face far more persecution than any of us can ever imagine. I I cannot fathom what it means to be a Christian in places like North Korea, Nigeria, Central African Republic, other places of the world. I don't know what it means, what it feels like to wake up every morning wondering what you're going to encounter that day. But we we have so many of our brothers and sisters who do And we need to be praying for them and supporting them and and being uh, caring for them in any way we can. Let me encourage you as a part of that to sign up for uh, information, an email or to receive snail mail from organizations. I'll just give you three. Barnabas Fund, Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs. They do a great job of of sharing information, prayer concerns, what's happening in the world. You can trust what they say. We need to be praying for them and being advocates for them. Don Little is just uh, is just completing a book, and one of the chapters is about how to help people who are being persecuted. And he was gracious enough to send me that chapter. And as I read through it this week, one of the things that that struck me was he says that there's a difference that he found between people who are inexperienced disciplers in those settings and people who are experienced disciplers. And the people who are inexperienced disciples focus all of their attention on personal disciplines. Prayer, memorizing scripture, those kinds of things. Very important. But that's pretty much the gist of it. He said the experienced disciples don't ignore that, but they bring into the people's lives the church. That the church becomes the support network, the support base for getting through whatever they're facing. And we need to be a part of that. It's not so much about us as it is about us that we become advocates together. And third, we need to be advocates for everyone who is oppressed and vulnerable. I had a conversation in preparation for the sermon with Don and Ben Hegeman, and one of the things that they said to me is that a lot of the persecution that goes on in the world is is not against Christians, it's against it's it's from Muslims toward Muslims, and I just read yesterday that uh, in 2012, 75 percent of people who were murdered, killed for their religious beliefs, what took place was Muslims murdering Muslims, and we miss so much of that because we're just focused on ourselves. And one of the things that seems to come to light, the church gets a foothold and and, and bears witness in a positive way is when the church cares more about, cares just as much, if not more, about other people as they do about protecting themselves. They aren't just trying to protect the Christians. They're protecting everyone who is oppressed, everyone who's vulnerable, everyone who is a target, the minorities around them. And even when it means that it's people who practice other faiths, people who have completely different lifestyle choices, the Christians are helping them and supporting them and, and protecting them and, and watching out for them in a way that 
other groups are simply not. And it sets them apart. And we have around us all kinds of people who are oppressed and vulnerable. Maybe they're oppressed by the systems of the government and they don't know how to function in the government and taking advantage of them. And other people taking advantage of them. And however much we may feel vulnerable, there are always other people who are more, more vulnerable than we are. And to be Christian is to care not just about Christians, but about everyone. People who are oppressed and vulnerable need to know that Christ loves them and that we love them. And if we're going to stand up for someone's rights, instead of just thinking about our rights, we think about their rights. And we become advocates for people that we might not normally think about. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of Christ. I'm intrigued when you get to this picture as Peter cuts off the servant's ear and Jesus heals him. It's important to understand that this is the ear of the servant of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the number one nemesis of Jesus. Caiaphas is the one who instigates the arrest, the torture, the crucifixion of Jesus. Caiaphas is the one who, who has, is leading Israel away from Yahweh. Caiaphas is the Ahab and Jezebel of first century Palestine. And yet, Jesus stoops down, picks up his Caiaphas' servant's ear, and heals him. The way of the cross is that love conquers hate. And the way of Christ conquers every other alternative. Gracious Father, we pray that you will help us. It's a hard word for us. We pray that you will give us the eyes and the ears and the heart of Christ. Help us to rely on you. Help us to to care not just about ourselves, but about others. And may your Holy Spirit work in each of our hearts. And we pray this, the love, the mercy, the grace of Jesus. Amen.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.